everyone, and welcome back for a brand new episode of The Witching Hour. This is an episode Haley and I have been looking forward to since January now, because we have the writer-director of Relic here, Natalie Erica James. How are you doing? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. Yeah. we. I'll, I'll warn you ahead of time, we have a lot of questions for you. Okay. <laughs> Great. So, well, I love you know, interview we did at Sundance it was like one of the best I think so I'm looking forward to it you you had like an especially good group to be with I was just re-watching that and you were you know especially given given the tone of the movie everyone was just so happy and joyful and lively I think that's the only way you can cope with it you know because it's so emotionally taxing for them they they have to cry for days yeah So just so everyone knows out there, if you have not seen the movie Relic, you are safe right now. We are going to do a non-spoiler chat for a good chunk of the episode. But if you have seen it, we're going to switch to spoilers halfway through the episode. So you're going to get all the little details there. But again, just in case you haven't seen Relic yet, it's opening up July 10th. Do not miss it. Check it out. You're getting that warning right up top here. Actually, I lied. Before we even get to Relic, we just want to learn a little more about you. And uh, one thing I'm always curious to know, when you were a very, very young film fan, what movies were you watching? And do you find that those movies have influenced your taste in the stories you create now? Yeah, I'd definitely say so. How, how young are we talking? Just any age. That's, that's, <laughs> I'm like trying to think of when I saw my first horror movie, but oh, yeah. I feel like no, I I definitely, a bad nudge for the average. I definitely remember um, the first film I saw in a cinema without parental supervision was The Others when I was 11. Um, and I went with a bunch of friends and we were scared out of our minds. And I think I really just enjoyed that experience. It's kind of like going on a roller coaster ride together, you know, where you're not sure if you'll get through it. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of like a primal experience. Um, and so, yeah, from there, I probably discovered cinema at around 13. So it was a massive Kubrick fan and David Lynch and Tchaikovsky and that kind of thing. So, you know, The Shining certainly made an impact at that point. Um, I also watched a lot of Asian horror as well growing up. So same kind of thing with friends. You'd have a sleepover and, you know, just not be able to sleep. Um, and yeah, I think I'm sure those films have something to do with why I make horror films now. I'm curious because the Relic has so much dream imagery in it. Do you remember the first movie to give you nightmares? Ooh, uh, E.T.? Um, I think I was maybe like six or something when I saw that. Yeah, that, um, it's, not, it's probably not a proper answer, but yeah, that legitimately made me scared when I was a kid. Um, <laughs> there something about it? Like, what got you? I think it was just the atmosphere in the opening. And so I think it just scarred me in the first, you know, 15 minutes. And then I was like, no, nah, I'm out. What is this weird alien creature? <laughs> Anyway, who knows? But um, I, yeah, I I don't remember the films, but I certainly had a lot of nightmares growing up. I also had a lot of sleep paralysis, which gives you crazy hallucinations. So maybe that's part of, yeah, the reason behind all this madness. (laughs) Did you ever watch The Haunting of Hill House, the Netflix series? 
Yes, yes, I did. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. I, I also that. had sleep paralysis growing up, and that was one of the first things I ever saw where I was like, wow, they nailed what that feels like. Completely, completely. Yeah, it's terrifying. It's, uh, it's this, like, you couldn't write better horror, basically. <laughs> Is, is there a way to work through that? I mean, I guess this is kind of a question for both of you. Is that oh. is that something that is like natural to you that you wind up keep cycling through, or is there a way to kind of crack that code a little? I think it's um, it's driven by lack of sleep. And so when I had it the worst, I think I was in high school studying for exam. Um, so as long as you get your eight hours, don't worry about you know demons whispering in your ear. <laughs> Now I'm going to get sleep anxiety when I know I can't get my eight hours. Totally. <laughs> so like uh, you might actually enjoy it. You just love being terrified. No, I take it as nothing <laughs> enjoyable about it, but it is the scariest thing you can probably ever experience. I feel like my curiosity totally. gets better of me. Like I, you can also um, astral project. Like you can have out-of-body experiences, which is pretty rad. So give it a go. <laughs> Have you had that? Yeah, I although I did it poorly. I think I sat up out of myself. So I was still on the bed and then I freaked out and was like, nope, nope, nope. <laughs> like this is not right. Oh but people my. yeah, people, you know, can walk around the house and still see themselves sleeping. Like, it's yeah, for me it's always what do you call it when you can control your dreams? My brain is failing right now. Lucid dreaming. Yeah, so that was like the positive end of having the night mm-hmm. terror. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. This makes me want another Insidious film now. Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> I have lucid dreamt once and my subconscious just turned on me, I found. So I haven't tried it again. Oh, no. <laughs> So at what point did you decide, I'm not just a film fan, but I want to be a filmmaker? And at that point, was it, you know, a realistic dream that you said, I'm going to jump into this industry and do it? Did you have that confidence? Um, Yeah, I think it was probably Peter Jackson's, like, Lord of the Rings. Remember those box set DVDs of all the behind the scenes? Um, So, you know, there was, like, hours of behind the scenes footage I got really into that around 11 12 and that was the first time I thought about you know what what goes into making films because I already I always loved films um but I think you know I, I I pursued I started making you know really terrible short films when I was about 13 and I was always the kid at school who would take um, like a little handy cam to school events and then cut them together with little fun videos for everyone to enjoy later. Um, so it was always on my mind, but I, I don't think I saw it as a realistic career choice until probably late high school. And I was doing art as one of my big subjects and I was using film as um, a medium to, to create art pieces. Um, so I made all these like really pretentious art films which is great uh, <laughs> but yeah I know my my parents I think because I was quite academic my parents had always like pushed me towards um you know not in a bad way but encouraged me to uh, pursue a career in law and so when I went for you know when you apply to universities I applied to one film school in Melbourne which was like my dream school 
and then the rest of the entries were all um, law, 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 law. And so I guess my thinking was, you know, if I'm not good enough for this dream school of mine, then I'm clearly not meant to be a filmmaker, which I think is a bit fatalistic, probably. <laughs> well, there's um, an ongoing debate also about, you know, should you even pay the money for tuition to go to film school right. or should you learn, you know, out there in the real yeah. world? It's certainly not necessary, honestly, these days, particularly. But I do think that film school allows you, it gives you the time to commit to making films and making those crucial mistakes that you have to go through to actually get to something worthwhile. Um, And also just the, the wonderful community that you find there. And so much of, you know, your early work is just friends doing you favors and you paying them back in the same way. So to have that network around you is, is pretty, um, you don't have to get it at film school, but you do need people, you know, that are like-minded, I think, to make a start effectively. How much, um, like, I don't know, what's the, the condensed version of how you got from film school to now having debuted this feature and sort of All right, yeah. journey. Cause I imagine that is a bit longer and more complicated than film school. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, leaving film school, I had, I did like an internship at a production house as a production assistant. And then I, I worked in ads for ages, um, in production, but also like directors assisting and eventually directing. But I think one bit of crucial advice I got in uh, film school was, you know, I, I thought I was going to be realistic and I, you have to pay rent, of course. So I was like, okay, what can I do post film school to make money? Um, and I thought, oh, I'll, I'll get into ADing because, you know, I'm, I'm decent at it. Um, and one of my lecturers was like, is that, is that what you want to you, you do for the rest of your life? And I was like, well, no, I want to be a director. But, and she was like, well, then you should direct. So, I mean, sounds so basic, but I just made sure I kept directing and I kind of structured my life in a way that I was doing short-term jobs that then I could just leave and, you know, do little passion projects like music videos and short films that, you know, you're paying for, but at least you're the director and you're creating work. So I think that was really, um, yeah, instrumental to getting to this point because Kreswick was just a short that I made you know, off my own back. And then, you know, with, again, favors from friends. Um, and that did the genre circuit a bit um, and got us enough attention to, like I signed with a US agent at that point. And we'd already had the first draft of Relic when we made that short. So it was like a very conscious group of contests. Uh, but I would say the short was really, really helpful in terms of just getting... Yeah, got, you know, eyes on the work and, and I guess functioning as a proof of concept does <laughs> in a way that, um, you know, people trusted your vision. Just because I'm curious now, when you're back in film school and you have to do favors for friends, because I vividly remember, like, in class, there was right. always someone you'd go to to AD, someone you'd go to to deal with sound. What, what was their go-to yeah. for you? Uh, I, I did quite a bit, I think, cause I have a very organized brain or something and I'm good at yelling maybe, <laughs> no, um, not at all. Um, uh, yeah, AD quite a bit, but you do all sorts. Um, uh, yeah, I certainly did my time as a, as a boom op and you know, whatever else. <laughs> 
So Gaffing as well was fun. My partner, you know, worked for ages in lighting and we met at film school. So I did my time in the, <laughs> the lighting department. It's like the perfect way to get a little extra knowledge about every single department. I don't know. Right. I just you're a better filmmaker when you have, you know, not necessarily a full understanding of what every single job on a set is, but a little experience so that you know what they're in for every day. I think that's so correct. And yeah, you can anticipate the problems easier as a director. So I think it's important. Uh, as a kind of follow up to that, did you ever act in anything to give you a sense of their perspective? <laughs> um, I have acted in... I took a short filmmaking course when I was 14 and have acted in a short film then. Um, I've done a, like very minimal theater work on stage, but no, I'm firmly behind the camera. <laughs> but I will say, like, <laughs> hilariously, this is kind of embarrassing, but often when it's a really tough scene um, on Relic, for example, I'll often picture myself you try to put myself in the character's shoes to the point where if it's a tough scene, people are like, are you okay? Because you're emotionally looking like distraught. And I'm like, no, but that's just the scene. And I'm just trying to you know, <laughs> be empathetic to the experience. Anyway. You'll have so, to read yourself some yeah. really happy, fun, relaxing scenes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we did all joke on relic while shooting it that we don't have to go do a comedy and <laughs> after this film, because it was such a, a grueling uh, task. Speaking of the subject matter here, so it, it's kind of like a Hollywood cliche. When you're first breaking into the industry, go with a horror movie because, you know, they're super marketable. Right. This, this is a little different, though, because it's it's extremely thoughtful and it's getting at other themes other than just scares for the sake of scares. So when you were first pitching it around, did you find that to be a roadblock at all or were they very accepting when they saw the script? Yeah, I think we were pitching it. It was a really, um, it was great timing for me uh, and the project because it was certainly a time when people were looking for female-directed trauma and horror in particular, and probably that's still the case. But um, in terms of resistance, yeah, I often found that uh, in America, when people would read the script, they'd definitely be like, okay, fine, great, you just need to push the horror. Like, we need more, you know, get like scary set pieces, horror set pieces. Whereas in Australia, talking to people, it was almost like the opposite. Like, oh, this is such a lovely drama. Like, why are you tarnishing it with this, you know, grotesque horror element kind of thing? <laughs> so, yeah, the contrast is really interesting. And I definitely think um, the balance was something that we had to keep pushing back on because, yeah, I, I agree. I think there's a, a really big impulse in the States to, to push the, the horror as far as you can, um, which is fine in theory, but in from a writing perspective, you can feel the writer's hand when the scares are not earned by the story. So, Well, as you yeah. were pitching it around, how did you negotiate that balance with people? How did you like convince them to see it your way and that this was the right way to tell the story? Oh, um, I don't know. I, <laughs> I, I feel like it's always, you know, a discussion and you have a lot of these conversations with potential partners. And so ultimately I think if they don't see it the way that you envision it, then they're probably just not the best fit. 
and I was really lucky in having Aussie producers who, you know, really backed me all the way and who I'd known since I was like in my early twenties. And so I guess in some ways I had that security and maybe if everyone across the board was like, no, it's this way or we're not funding film, we maybe there was a version of the film that we could have made in Australia for a smaller budget, but was still true to, you know, the way that we wanted to tell the story. So I think I think if I didn't have those Aussie producers, maybe it would have been a bit different. But having that support meant that we could be quite firm and go, this is going to be made regardless, um, either jump on board or not. And that's not to say we weren't collaborative as well, of course. Where do you find yourself finding the right pace and tone and style? Because this, this does, you know, have a very specific pacing to it. Is it on set while you're shooting and you're getting what you know you need? Or does that come together for you in the edit? Um, yeah, I think, I think probably it's a combination of both, I would say. And for me as well as a first timer, I think you, you do there's a bit of trial and error as well. Um, I will say uh, what's something that's really important is taking your time. Um, and I know there's that cliche of like uh, directors giving shit notes and basically just like do it faster, do it slower. Um, but I would often, to Robin particularly, if I needed a certain uh, languidness or a certain frame to hold, it would often be like, brilliant but just slow it down take your time kind of thing so I think it's partly on set and you have to be conscious of the moments that are going to sing and the moments that need the space particularly if they have certain sound design that's going to go along with it so that you you feel that uneasiness and the uncanniness and it has an impact um but certainly in the edit you also tighten things up and um yeah I think I think the edit you're you're usually tightening and then the shoot you usually slowing down so what about the importance of inserts especially in that house where there's so many details do you mm. again on set know specifically what you need or are you going crazy getting everything you could possibly need for editing purposes yeah no we um we wrote in the script there are a lot of these moments and they kind of serve to highlight the house's decline just as much as Edna's kind of deterioration as well. Um, so that was, I think that was a really important part of the script. And um, I guess there's like, they're like little mini tragedies, you know, within the frame as well. Uh, so so we, all, we always had them in mind from the get-go. I think you, you definitely just go around getting variations on what that setup is and what that scene or insert is. So... Yeah, I suppose there's a little bit of improvisation on the day. We had like um, a second unit, second unit or, or B camera at certain points going off and getting those, but um, we always knew what they were. So. I feel like uh, genre, like filmmakers in other genres, don't respect the insert as much as a right. horror does. Right, right, right. <laughs> well, when you shoot the house, you also have some um, very I don't know what the right, like energetic camera movements, especially towards the end as you're exploring that. Oh, yeah. A bit more. And uh, you, of course, 
had the opportunity to be on the set of Upgrade where Lee Winnell really got creative with his camera movements. Mm. What it was like to watch that and if you were able to take anything from that or if, uh, if you were just like, I need to shoot this house in every way so everyone knows it. You never, sorry? I never felt lost at the end as you're exploring oh, these okay. other pieces of the house. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, we, we did want, um, my cinematographer, uh, Charlie Saras and I, we did want a, um, almost like a destabilizing as the film progressed. So, you know, the start of the film really is very um, squared off and there's like slow creeps and everything's like a little bit wider. Uh, and then we kind of tunnel into this kind of claustrophobic, disorientating camera work um, that can you know turn on its on its head as well um yeah there was one amazing thing in that Lee did in on upgrade which was you know that scene where uh it's an action scene but the camera moves with the the tilting of the guy's body and the way they did that was like the sensor was tied on the actor was like an iphone so they just had that in his pocket and that was what was like the, the position of the phone was kind of driving the camera, which I thought was incredible. So, yeah, I definitely think that, you know, the way that he approached cinematography made me think about more inventive ways to, um, yeah, uh, and, and more inventive cinema language. I think, I think a lot of Relic is about shifting perspectives as well. And so it was important that the camera work kind of mirrored that. And so, yeah, there's certain key points where, the camera shifts, you know, on itself as well. So. I'm endlessly fascinated by the motion control camera. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah. Yeah, so it's like something else with it. I have a very specific framing question for you because we were just talking about a more mobile camera, but I want to know about a uh, shot where you're completely locked off. It's the moment where, uh, where Kay is asking uh, Edna where she's been and she's not really giving her an answer, and Edna's completely out there, and it's just on K. So what inspired you to shoot that very important moment that way? I guess the sense that she was inscrutable in a way, um, and that there's a lot of, you know, uh, in designing the house, we made sure to include spaces that were, just outside of the human eye or, you know, um, things that were framed by, by walls and obscured other areas of the house. And so that, I guess, approach to the design of the house also carried over into the cinematography as well. And so the things that were unseen, the things that were unknown, I guess, the attempt was to mimic the kind of suspension throughout the film of like, is it Alzheimer's? Is it something supernatural? Um, yeah, you don't really, you aren't really sure until the film kind of unravels. So. I just love how well that moment puts you in Kay's shoes, kind of like reaching for information that, you know, maybe no one has access to. Yeah, yeah, completely. Kind of along those lines, I'm curious about striking that balance between being disorientating, capturing that unknowable quality, but also making sure that your geography doesn't confuse mm -hmm. the eye. Like I said, at the end, I'm able to follow the action, which is important. So that's a fine line to walk. Yeah, I'm so glad you're able to follow it because um, I, 
I think in some some of the coverage was driven by the realities of the set as well. You know, we wanted a sense of um, things looping and things repeating as well. But um, I think when we were designing it, it was a much bigger space. And then we were, I think, about like 40% over budget. So we had to cut it all down. <laughs> and in the end, it was like two hallways. I mean, Stephen, the production designer, did an incredible job, you know, making these modular pieces that could move around to accommodate different parts of the labyrinth, which was amazing. So I think we, yeah, we were really conscious about how it all pieced together. Um, because if you looked at that site, you would be like, oh, fuck, that's really small. <laughs> yeah. I feel like we're tiptoeing towards spoiler territory, and I don't want to not oh, ask sorry. about I don't want to not ask about your cast here before we switch over. Um, you obviously have three phenomenal leads here. Can you speak a little bit to each one's individual process and whatever was required for you as their actor's director in order to give them what they each individually needed? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it was interesting with Robin because we actually did, we, we tried the approach of... Um, doing research into Alzheimer's patients. And so she actually spent some time at a nursing home with um, like a a dementia ward. Um, And she participated in a few kind of like group sessions and activities and that kind of thing, just to get a sense. But in the end, you know, we we both kind of thought, okay, this is a, a, a good approach. It might be useful. But in the end, it didn't prove to be that useful because it, focus too much on the outward kind of um, representation of Alzheimer's as opposed to how it feels like internally. And so she kind of was like, I am not going to worry about the progression of the film. This is a, you know, and we talked about how it's a character who's kind of dealing with what's in front of her moment. moment. Uh, And so that's how we approached it. So she wasn't too concerned with like, she, like we knew that the character had, gaps in memory and she's she's the most she's sympathetic but she's the most inscrutable and she does kind of have this menacing quality for the audience as well and so tracking her we're not as aligned with her there's probably like a few moments in the film where we're just with Edna um so she was kind of like I'm handing the reins over to you (laughs) you make the decisions on, on in terms of where she's at and um you know she she brought so much to it but in terms of she, she was taking a moment by moment. She wasn't having like an overview view of where this character is going in any sense. Um, Robin said to me that apparently all three of them think I'm quite demanding, which I didn't, I didn't recognize on set. I, you know, you just kind of do what you do. Um, but uh, yeah, she, she'd often have this kind of um, sometimes like a resistance, but she was always very willing to go along. And then often at the end of, you know, the scene, she'd be like, you're right. Yeah. That, that fixed it kind of thing. So um, yeah, no, she was great. I think um, for Bella. As you, as you say, the demanding thing, the, it was there a toothbrush story that I'm remembering? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Apparently I, I needed um, her to brush her teeth in a certain way. And um, it just meant that, yeah, she she had to kind of pretend to brush her teeth for way longer than you know anyone should. Attention to detail. Yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> um, and then with 
with Emily, I felt, uh, I mean, she's, her instincts are always like bang on. Like she's amazing. Um, she, I, I, uh, I felt like she was the type of person who um, really wanted to, you know, on set you're often, you've got your stand-ins and you're like, oh, we want to save the actors being on set while we light and blah, blah, blah. So they often come in at the last minute where she always wanted to be there, you know, early just so that she could feel, uh, just get comfortable within the space and within the business that she was doing because she had a lot of business in the film. Um, and so that was great. So she, she, for her, it wasn't just about like nailing it in one take. It was more like, let's just keep going. Like, it's great. I love it, you know. And she was able to um, mix it up in a way that, uh, yeah, I, you know, was constantly surprising. Um Often as well, like with a really big meaty scene, I'd often kind of just be like at the very end, if we have time, just be like, do whatever you want kind of thing, just as a, you know, see what happens. And um, she, yeah, she, she always managed to surprise me in like an incredible way during those takes particularly. Um, Bella was awesome as well, of course. She, she has this thing about like how she always gets it in the third take. And yeah, there was, um, it was kind of, I guess, yeah, there's some truth to that maybe, but um, she, she had to go to some pretty dark places for the film as well. And so for her in um, the prep for the film, we just talked a lot about our lives and, um, you know, our experiences and it kind of like a writing process, really, if you have a co-writer, you just talk about um, like, like things that have happened to you, you know, emotional experiences, and you kind of build a shorthand and a language for how the two of you um, find common ground within those things. And so we had done a lot of that, and, and um, it meant that we had a great basis to talk about those kinds of things on set. Um, but she, you know, often would just go off into a corner and, you know, put, put her headphones in, to gear herself up to a take. Um, and yeah, she absolutely nailed it, I think. Yeah. Hallie, I'm like, should I do it? Should we, should we move over? All right. Before we move over, we always like to include two specific questions in every single Witching Hour interview. Okay. Hallie, we do the honors first. You could pick one or the other. Sure. Um, well, we always like to ask people, you know, what have you seen lately in genre, whether it's a movie, video game, book, whatever, that really affected you and that you think other people should check out? Ooh, um, yeah, good one. I, this is going to sound so obvious, but I only saw Midsummer last month because I've been writing this folk horror and I was like, no, I need to like save myself to watch this so that, you know, I'm not influenced by it, but regardless, I loved it. Um, thought it was awesome. Um, I also just listened to a podcast called the left, right game, which was really fascinating. It's got Tessa Thompson. They're making it into a TV series. Um, and it's essentially about this road where if you keep going left and right and left and right, you enter this supernatural kind of, alternative universe and it was yeah unsettling and weirdly effective for it um yeah just an audio kind of podcast story great 
I've had that on my to-do list ever since that news broke. That was a nice reminder to actually go. Yeah. Yeah. Check it out. It has some really creepy, creepy ass moments. (laughs) My kind of thing. A very important question now. Do you have any pets? No, I grew up in apartments in Asia. And so we never were allowed to have pets, unfortunately. I mean, I had salamanders when I was a kid, but um, yeah, that's it. Salamanders (laughs) count as pets. Salamanders. I'm not sure why. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Um, The time has come. This is this is your gigantic spoiler warning for Relic. If you have not seen it, do not continue on, but don't leave without knowing that Relic will be available to you on July 10th. Check it out. It's also playing in Drive-In Cinemas on July 3rd as well. On, that's why we got the release dates confused. <laughs> oh, yeah. So um, I wish they were doing it in Australia, but no, it's just the states they're doing Drive-In Cinemas. Awesome. That's- I, w- I mean, if there's ever any silver lining, it's the ri- the rise of drive-in movie theaters again. I just I love that movie. Yeah. Okay, it's spoiler time. I feel like I should just get the like the big one out of the way first. Mm-hmm. So, as you're working on this script and just the way you personally look at it, do you view the film as having a monster? I call it a menace. Um, and we called it more of, uh, I suppose, I, I suppose I like the idea that it, it's quite human at the end of it all. But at certain points, the name that we gave it was The Other, um, which I guess speaks to like the otherness of someone that you love looking the same, but, you know, becoming something, you know, seemingly becoming someone else through Alzheimer's. But the uh, the other would still then, like it wouldn't be a supernatural scenario. It is it is strictly like an inverted version of Edna. Yeah, I think it's. I know. I would say it's definitely supernatural for sure. <laughs> yeah, a creature maybe, not a monster. Well, kind of like to follow up on that when you're you're dealing with themes of mortality and the fragility of the human form and. Uh, sort of these existential questions that cannot be answered how much did you want to have internal answers yourself to any sort of mythology or how this is all work um answers to questions yeah i i guess it's almost like a it's just a philosophical approach almost um you know i i I do think the film even though it's you know, really sad at the end, it's still very optimistic. And for me, it's, it kind of is a representation of how I feel about life. And I've always been kind of interested in the idea of impermanence. And um, I guess in the vanitous art traditions, the, the, uh, yeah, the impermanence of life and the inevitability of death. But in the face of that, that the connections with the people that we love is, you know, what truly matters. So I think that, you know, you feel that at the end, even though there's no, you know, there is an open-ended question about uh, with when we end on uh, Bella's character, Sam. But I think that also relates to the idea that, you know, your parents' mortality, ine- mortality inevitably makes you think about your own mortality. 
And certainly for me, you know, with my grandmother having had Alzheimer's, it makes me think about my mom and how she's going to be. And, you know, it, it is this kind of cycle. And so hopefully there's a sense that it comes full circle, even if it's um, unresolved. Did you ever have, um, like, a progress chart, either just in your head or something that you worked out in terms of the, like, the actual physical de-evolution of that form oh, um, yeah, yeah. found on the day. I mean, no, obviously, um, to a certain extent, affects demand planning, but you know. What yeah, I mean. yeah. No, it was pretty um, thoroughly planned out. I think we had about eight or nine stages of this transformation. And it was quite a challenge trying to figure out the points in which the stages change um, in a way that was natural. Um, so, you know, if, if we're like, if we don't see Edna for a few minutes, then she's probably gone up the stage. Um, yeah, so in a way that that it felt seamless, that was quite a challenge. Um, and particularly when you're dealing with an actor wearing prosthetics, a stunt double wearing prosthetics as well. Um, and of course, of course, you need the stunt double for various reasons. One of them being that it's a you know a, a Robin's a seventy six year old woman when we shot this. Um, so transitioning from a person to a stunt double to a puppet, that, that definitely took a lot of planning. Yeah. It's fun, though. It's like fun, creative um, problem solving. Creature work is just always the greatest. I love that yeah. stuff. Yeah. Uh, did you always know, actually, kind of a twofold question, when did that frame of the three of them in the bed together first come to mind? But also, did you ever consider ending either on that overhead shot or the shot on Bella and not necessarily the door? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so to answer the first question, yeah, going back to Vanity's art, there's this motif of, um, the three ages of woman and death. And it's just like a, a painting of essentially a woman who's, you know, a young woman, a kind of matriarch, and then um, a crone, I guess, traditionally, and then death as well within the frame. So that was always going to exist in some form or another, the three of them on the bed all laid out together. Um, and yes, originally we didn't end on the stained glass window but we wanted that final moment to, um, I guess, I guess uh, we could have ended it on the bruise and, and Sam's reaction to it. But I think by having more visuals, there's a sense that like the audience has to engage with the image longer. Because I think when a film finishes, there's a, you know, for some people, maybe there's a tendency to just kind of go, okay, cool, that's done. Whereas, yeah, we wanted that moment to, to linger on. And it seemed to tie um, everything together in terms of the idea of like inheritance, for example, with the relic itself being inherited from great grandfather. So I think just as a motif, it, it kind of sits there at the end. I don't really have a question here. Just want to pay a huge compliment because um, that as, as someone who lost family young and also has dealt with Alzheimer's, that scene just completely haunted me the first time I saw yeah. it before Sundance and then revisiting it this afternoon I found it even more effective it's really powerful imagery and I also think that it um it, like hits different during a pandemic like right. it, oh my goodness oh man yeah oh, well thank you I 
Yeah, I I never like to you know make people cry, but thank you all the time. You made me cry. <laughs> yeah, I think we both had that that kind of response because we both we both saw it back in January and we loved the movie back then, but. The second time around, like, I can't even quite put a finger on why, except maybe having a better understanding of what we were in for and really seeing all, all of it come together and feeling that conclusion. But, like, it hit ten times harder the second time around. That's so nice to hear, because I have seen that film 300 times, I think, and I'm so numb to everything. So thank you. <laughs> I can only live vicariously through you guys. <laughs> Here's a very specific question for you. What inspired uh, the candle making specifically? Yeah, so funny story about the candle making. So the um, Creswick, the proof of concept, there's an element in the film of um, the father being, I don't know if you've seen it, but the father is like a, um, a woodworker. So he makes furniture. And the big reveal in that film is that his furniture is slowly kind of shifting in quality and increasingly getting odder and um, freakier. Um, and that's a big moment of revelation for the character. Uh, and that came from uh, my cinematographer um, who told me about his father who had, who also had dementia and he'd been a you know great musician. But over time, as his condition worsened, his music started to um, worsen and become off key. And it, it was, a kind of decline that he wasn't aware of or he didn't notice as well. So that was kind of the seed of the idea. And that's shown in Kreswick the Short. When we started writing Relic, um, we made that element, um, I guess we kind of put it into Relic as Edna making uh, tiny dollhouse furniture. So it started out differently. But then um, Hereditary came out <laughs> while we were writing it. And we were like, oh, fuck. Like, there's no way we're going to get away with this miniature kind of set that are slowly, you know, falling apart. So, um, yeah, you can thank Arya for that one. <laughs> so then, as a, you know, we still needed this kind of visual um, uh, representation of the grandmother's decline. And so, yeah, we I settled on um, this German candle carving, which gave us, um, I suppose, like the weapon as well, which kind of comes in later too. So. That, uh, now that you say that, it's hereditary. It's also kind of in the lodge a little bit. With oh, the yeah. And then I'm also thinking of the episode in Creepshow. So right. it's better off you veered in a different direction. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, common horror trope or motif 100%. absolutely sure <laughs> um to revise an earlier question i hope i phrased this right i think the word supernatural was wrong and this might be my like overly an analytical brain trying to compartmentalize things but i think instead of supernatural i more so mean like like an outside force like, do, when you mm. read what happens, is everything, like, internal and natural to this family, like, an inevitable truth? Or is there or is there any, like, entity pulling the strings that isn't connected to who they are? Yeah, I, I really appreciate when stories can work on both levels. And that might sound like a bit of a cop-out, but I, I, I really push back on stories that are too... Um, singularly psychological 
And that's why we didn't want it to be seen from one person's perspective. It was definitely like this family going through this thing. So we wanted it to have a real, you know, obviously it works as a metaphor and, and it's, it can be read completely in its allegorical form as well. But um, we definitely had the um, mythology of this great grandfather in the cabin and, and I guess his neglect um, that resulted in his death being like the starting point for this kind of sinister organic black mold presence that drove a lot of the story. So yeah, I, I prefer it when the menace is real just as much as, as it is psychological so that you can't point to it and go, oh, that was just in their heads. And um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's, it's, it's a tricky balance because then if, if once you start vocal or verbalizing mythology in horror, it can start to sound a bit naff at times. You know, supernatural mold is, is like what it is. Um, but I I think it's a more interesting approach and it has its challenges, but it, it can be worthwhile. Yeah. When you stick the landing with a balance like that, that's what makes a movie not a fleeting, fleeting thrill, but something that really sticks with you. So mm-hmm. even though my brain wants to process everything and label everything, right, I, like, right. that, I don't know, that's, that's the way to do it. So I'm curious, you know, those, that final, it's like, you know, I think it's a good 10 minute chunk at the end of the film that really slows down, quiets down and uh, feels really like the heart and the thesis of the movie writ large sort of, but it does quiet down and slow down. And I'm curious if when you were having those conversations in America where they were like lean into the horror, was there ever any pressure to be like, no, this ends when they defeat the creature? Um, Yeah, I think I don't think the ending was... Oh, okay. I think one of the calls that we had, it was definitely a sense of, you know, one of the uh, structural um, commonalities of a lot of American horror or traditional horror is that the the evil continues on or, like, comes back in a certain way. So I think some people were definitely like, oh, you know, we want it we want the menace to like be more forefront. Um, but I think there is like a, a, a little bit of that in the bruise, right? That there is, there's a threat, but it's not necessarily like a monster. It's all, it's just the truth of aging. <laughs> it sounds so bleak. Oh my God. <laughs> but um, yeah. So in a, in a sense, it kind of mimics uh, a more traditional horror film but it's just not the ghost that like disappears at the end again so that you can have people. Um, the other question I had is, did you ever envision what Jamie had gone through in the house? I was just wondering what, what his perspective on that yeah, was. Yeah, I thought that potentially um, because the, I always felt like essentially all the other characters in the film were being drawn into Edna's experience of Alzheimer's. And so the kind of shadows that you feel are in a way just uh, quite common for, you know, people with like sundowning or, you know, they think that there's uh, people around when there aren't. Um, But in a sense that the supernatural element of the house was kind of bringing those to life. And so you could read it as just, um, you know, a guy who is scared of being in a dark closet by himself and that's why he's desperate to get out as well. Or there could be some 
well, something lurking, which has come from Edna, but is also affecting him as well. So that's kind of how I approached it in, in terms of, you know, for example, the, the figure under the bed that Kay actually sees. So it's almost like, I mean, it comes from, you know, like my grandmother would often speak to people who weren't there and you were like, I know they're not there, <laughs> but what if they were? <laughs> so the, the supernatural house is essentially bringing those kind of notions to life. I want to dovetail back a little bit to the uh, the design of the other, so to speak. And mm-hmm. I remember when we spoke before Sundance, you, you mentioned that you didn't do it intentionally, but you'd had this recurring dream when you were a kid that, uh, yeah. <laughs> that the imagery was kind of tied to. And I'm curious, like, yeah. at what point did you become aware that that was connected? And, and uh, just the design process in general to get to what you ended up with. Yeah, I, um, that's so interesting. I, I think in some ways you, um, you write and create work um, and you can't see the threads and the influences until you take a step back. And it's often through other people commenting on the work that you think back to make those connections probably. And so I, I would say it was pretty, maybe in, in post or something like that, or, you know, that what, when that occurred to me that, yeah, I used to have this kind of recurring nightmare about my mom dying and going to her funeral in this like field of red flowers. And then she was like a skeleton. And then, you know, I made her pinky promise me that she would never die. And anyway, all this drama. But yeah, visually in terms of like the human skeleton, I think that, we really, even though the other is um, covered in, you know, the black mold and that's consistent with the cabin and, and the other motifs in the film, um, that it still has this very vulnerable, fragile human um, kind of energy and uh, physicality and that it's a, something to be or someone to be um, sympathetic to and to care for. Um, and I think it just mimics the... Uh, the how people are at the end of their life a lot of the time too you know they really do waste away in um in a similar fashion so it's not that far outside of um reality <laughs> yeah what was the uh like the most challenging part of bringing that to life on set because it really does capture a lot of reality despite obviously looking very otherworldly was mm-hmm. Was it hard to get the physicality right in camera? Yeah, we worked with an amazing, obviously, prosthetics team, but also a animatronics team from Brisbane who, um, they just, yeah, really pulled all the stops. They had fast, like, muscles in the face rigged up so you could control almost, like, every element of the face. And um, they were so skilled in making those subtle facial movements. Like we originally thought we'd have to VFX the eyes, make them look more realistic. But it turns out what makes your eyes, you know, pop is the muscles around them and the emotion that the muscles are kind of portraying because the eyes are just, you know, glass, like they're just eyeballs essentially. So in the end, like it was the puppet itself was enough. And I mean, we, I was so conscious of the fact that the stakes were high with this particular um, element because it wouldn't matter how, you know, great the rest of the film was. If you get to the end and it doesn't look right, it was all going to fall flat. 
or um yeah I, I burst into tears of joy when I saw it for the first time it was yeah it was amazing did you keep anything from set or is just the material too I don't know dark to even have that in your house no no I weirdly have my partner was on set throughout the film as well um and our kitchen table is a prop from the set, which is great. Um, I kept the um, the notebook, the sketchbook, with the drawings, um, and at the Carver, so the office where my Aussie producers work from, they have because we we made two the other puppets, so they have one of them um, and it's sitting sitting in the corner. <laughs> What a what a sight when you first walk in. So um, yeah, I think I also they made me this. Um, this is so nerdy, but they made me this. Uh, essentially, it's like this stained glass window. Oh my god! Over plated. Um, yeah, it was like a little gift from my Aussie producers. Um, so I guess I have it with me always. <laughs> And that is such a good idea. Yeah, it's really sweet, isn't it? Yeah. It is so thoughtful. Let me mess with puppet real quick. Uh, how do you direct an actor to work with a puppet like that? What was that experience like? Um, well, that scene in particular, I feel like there's obviously a really heightened genre element to it, and there's a grotesqueness, you know, that comes across. But for when talking to Emily, like we really just played it almost as a a funeral rite. So, for example, in Japan, you you know wash the body of your deceased loved ones before the funeral. So it w- wasn't too dissimilar from that in the way that we played it. Um, I think she was amazing at doing that throughout the film. In that, you know, you don't you kind of put the fact that it's a horror film outside of your head and just um, focus on the emotional reality of what your character is going through. Um, so yeah, in approaching it through that kind of grief, I think we were able to walk past like the fact that it's a puppet, you know, it's more like a washing the body of a, a loved one, which, you know, I think she, yeah, did a phenomenal job. What is the first thing you all did when you wrapped? Like, what, like, what was it, was it like, I don't know, the emotional wallop that we feel after watching the movie, or is it kind of cathartic in a release? Well, hilariously, um, when we were doing shooting the scenes where Bella has to break through walls, um, there was one when she's in the kind of narrowing corridor where she breaks through the ceiling. Um, we had a few different uh, breakaway walls, but they were going to take too long to set up. Uh, and we were running behind schedule, so we only had we had only one take to do it essentially. Um, and I was really bummed about it, and I knew we didn't have the coverage that I wanted. And um, it was the only day on set that I went home, kind of feeling really upset with what I'd captured because I was like, "Fuck!" Like we've we've spent months bringing this all together, and just because we can't go over time, we've got to like settle for you know something lesser. Um, and so when we wrapped, my art department team brought out the breakaway wall and I just kicked it and punched it, <laughs> which was amazing. Like they were so, yeah, they were so incredible. But, um, so yeah, I would say it was a really cathartic release. And then we all hugged and, you know, had some bubbly. <laughs> For what it's worth watching that scene, I never would have known. 
Oh, amazing. Yeah, great. The magic of uh, covering your mistakes for the post. Yeah. Are there any other, is there any example of kind of, you know, that, like the good that comes out of things going wrong that you didn't anticipate where something turned out better than you had originally planned? Yeah, I mean, there's the usual ones, like locations falling through and then you um, you find something else uh, that's even better and you're like, great. Um, some other things, sometimes when you're pressed for time, you are forced to combine shots and you do come up with stuff that is probably just more elegant and, you know, gets it across more succinctly anyway. So there can be happy accidents like that, definitely, yeah. I can't think of anything like specifically though. Um, probably the shot thing is is um, a good discipline, and I think improvising sometimes. I, I'm a planner, so I generally, with my shorter front pro- projects, I really like to plan, um, you know, uh, really thoroughly. But with this, because there were so many shifting parts, you kind of just have to go with the flow a bit more and make decisions on the fly. And and that was pretty great just to, um, I guess, just to know that you can do that and to trust yourself and your instincts. Yeah. Do you guys have any, uh, like, onset rituals or anything like that to not get too heavy when things were so heavy? Or was it important to sort of stay in that place? Um, I was really conscious of the actors. Um, and not breaking them out of their kind of space, uh, emotional headspace. So um, certainly we, for those really tough scenes, we tried to be really conscious and, you know, keep it at a certain level. But generally I like a fun set and I like it when people are happy and, you know, collaborative and joking and lots of laughs. I mean, that's one of the best parts of filmmaking, you know, the camaraderie that you have with people on set and the sense that you're, you know, all doing it together. So um, I think that's just generally the vibe of the set that I prefer. Um, but yeah, rituals. I don't know. The camera department guys would always do like these really cute stretches <laughs> like in the morning. That was pretty, that was pretty funny. Um, but yeah, nothing, nothing really. Nothing what about for you in particular? Is there something you have to have in hand when you show up to set, even if it's just a cup of coffee? Yeah, I definitely smashed some coffees. Um, I, I have like a, I don't know, just a vest that I use, you know, pretty much every day of the shoot. And that feels like when you put that on that you're, you know, going into that mode uh, of the time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I feel like I'm going to start saying I'm smashing my coffee every day now. Before we have to let you go here, I don't want to, I don't want to get greedy because like technically when we're having this conversation, Relic hasn't even come out, but do you have the next idea in your back pocket are you able to, I, I don't know, like this is so clearly very personal to you. Is the next thing something that's going to be personally driven to, or do you want to kind of step outside that realm? Um, yeah, I'm writing a few things and they're all subgenres of horror um, and they're all very personal. I don't know how else to write a film because I just feel like you spend, you know, minimum two years of your life you know working on something you have to care about it that much surely so yeah all three of them um are 
if not, you know, and they don't have to be personal experience. It's more like personal questions or personal fears. And, you know, for me, filmmaking is a great way to just ask those big philosophical questions in your life. So the next, the one that's furthest along is the folk horror that I mentioned earlier um, called Drumwave, which is set in Japan. It's got a very like Rosemary's Baby, uh, Wicker Man vibe to it. It's about a woman who's kind of deeply afraid of motherhood on many levels and who marries into a family on this remote island to worship a fertility goddess. So when she thwarts their ritual sacrifice, she has to um, escape being kind of offered up as like a surrogate sacrifice. And also she kind of inexplicably falls pregnant. So it's dealing with a lot of like body horror to do with this is my nightmare. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. Nightmare. <laughs> yeah, so that's my general approach. I just take everything I'm scared of and then just like put it over. That also yeah. sounds like it's gonna be a great lead role for someone. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, wow. very intense. Um, you said you know you guys had the miniature houses and then you saw hereditary you said you just watched midsummer obviously you can't say a lot of details but was there anything in that that you were like um there i mean obviously folk horror has commonalities throughout so you can't avoid those um there's a massive hallucinogenic element in the script that we wrote and when we saw that we we're like oh fuck but you know maybe audiences will forgive us for the the repetition i don't know <laughs> oh, like man. Yeah, it has like honored tropes that you yeah yeah completely <laughs> that is so cool i'm so excited for you i'm excited for yeah. the new project mm-hmm. i'm excited for relic to finally get out to the world thanks guys this has been really fun um, yeah you guys are both awesome yeah, you you are quite awesome yourself. So let everybody know when Relic is coming out and where to see it. But do you have any personal social media or websites or anything that you want to let our viewers know where they can find stuff about you? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm terrible. I don't have Twitter or anything like that. But I'm on Instagram at Natalie E. James. And Haley, where can everyone find your work? I am on Instagram at Haystack McGroovy and Twitter at Haley Fouch. And I'm uh, P. Nemiroff on Twitter and Instagram. Again, Natalie, big thanks to you for being with us today. Another thank you to everybody out there for watching this episode. You have officially survived the witching hour. Napa know-how. Get all the quality parts you need at your locally owned Napa. Because right now, when you order from Napa Online, you can pick up curbside at your local store in just 30 minutes. Or get your order delivered direct to your door with free one-day shipping and over 160,000 quality parts when you spend $35 or more. Quality parts delivered quickly and safely. That's Napa Know-How. Napa Know-How. At participating stores, standard ground shipping and exclusions apply. That little Chico Pitbull, Mr. 305, but I said Mr. Worldwide. You already know what it is. Listen to my new podcast from Negative to Positive. Subscribe today. Now, part of the things that we're doing over here at Negative to Positive is encouraging people to change their lives, change the things that are within their power. I want to thank our good friends at KFC for helping me bring this to you. Feed your whole crew with KFC. Let's go. I can get the KFC bucket of chicken, and you know, that's fire. Now, Bobo, you know that you could get that mac and cheese, that mashed potato, gravy, those biscuits. Now that's 
That's trouble right there. That is fire right there. You know, on negative to positive, we're always talking about striving and achievement. And, and the Colonel Sanders story is, is a story that inspired me since I was 10 years old. Look how our life comes full circle. Now I'm talking about Colonel Sanders and Kentucky Fried Chicken and how much I love it. <laughs> Listen to my new podcast from negative to positive. Check out the vodcast. Subscribe today. Apple Podcast, Podcast One, Spotify.